Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Shobhana Xavier. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you are safe and well wherever you are. As you know, in each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we are joined by an author who has recently published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with them. Believing in South Central, Everyday Islam and the City of Angels, published by University of Chicago Press in 2021, is by Dr. Pamela J. Prickett, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam. This book is an ethnographic study of an African-American Muslim community in South Central Los Angeles. The accessible study follows the believers of Masjid al-Quran, or MAC, as they live their Islam in and around the mosque community, such as during prayers or Ramadan, but also while conducting business and interacting with one another. Masjid al-Quran's institutional history leads back to the Nation of Islam and later transitioned to Sunni Islam through the leadership of W.D. Muhammad. MAC is also embedded in South Central that has changed demographically and socioeconomically over time. Embedded in this complex urban geography, Prickett masterfully illuminates the deep entanglements of class, race, and gender in the defining of faith and ritual for members of this community. The study interrogates tenuous realities of giving and receiving charity, the intricate, agentic Muslim expressions of African-American femininity and womanhood, and the positionality of African-American Muslims vis-a-vis diasporic Muslim Americans. This book is also a stunning ethnography. It is attentive to many methodological concerns such as of positionality, access, and immersive fieldwork, but it is also a story of friendship, love, and loss. The study will be of interest to those who think and reflect on Islam in America, African-American Islam, race, gender, and religion, but it will also be a wonderful text to incorporate in methods courses, especially on 
anthropology or ethnography or sociology of religion. In our conversation today, Dr. Prickett and I spoke about how she became an urban ethnographer and sociologist and what led to this particular project. We explored themes in the different chapters, namely that of race, gender, and class. Finally, Dr. Prickett also reflected on her methodological process and shared some advice for those considering doing such a method of research, that is ethnography. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Pamela J. Prickett about her new book, Believing in South Central, Everyday Islam in the City of Angels. Hi, Pamela. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, Believing in South Central, Everyday Islam in the City of Angels. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast and for working with me on all my various time zones uh, constraints. Oh, no, it's completely my pleasure. And I'm glad that we were able to coordinate a time to talk. Um, I, As I was mentioning earlier, I just finished this book this morning. And so I'm like so much of it is really raw. And I'm actually quite grateful to be able to chat with you to process it because it was um, it was intense. It was emotional um, and really pulled at my heartstrings at moments. So I'm grateful mm. to, to have this opportunity to process that with you. Um, so we have our tradition and the new books in Islamic Studies podcast to start with a little bit about who you are and what led to, you know, your academic career and also this particular book. Um, You're an urban ethnographer, you're a professor of sociology. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what got you interested in those fields and what led to this book in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I love the opportunity to to do that because it's an important part of who I am and, and how this book came to be. So I am a sociologist and um, I'm an ethnographer through and through. I, I joke with my students at the start of every class that I want ethnographer on my tombstone. That's how <laughs> important being an ethnographer is to me. I started my career actually in television as a journalist, broadcast journalist. And so I had a, a different career and really wanted to be able to do long projects, really you know, deep kind of field work. And so that's why I went into get a sociology PhD. And I particularly chose UCLA because of the methodology training. And I think I'm biased, but I think it's the best place in the world to be trained as an ethnographer. And so I went to grad school with this desire to be an ethnographer and with a really explicit intellectual interest in American Islam. So knowing that I would be in LA for many years and that I wanted to do deep ethnography, I decided that I would study Islam in Los Angeles. And and LA is a fascinating place, um, which I imagine I will keep studying LA for many, many more years to come. And we can talk about that later if you want. But so in in graduate school, I I, I decided early I'm going to start doing fieldwork. So I started it first year of my PhD program. And I was going to two sites, actually. And I talk about this just a little bit in the book. I touch on it that I was going to one mosque or Islamic center in a different part of Los Angeles that was predominantly run by Arab and South Asian American Muslims, um, mostly also the the congregants who were going, the believers who were going. Um, And I was also interested really in, I had been reading about the history of Islam in America and became really intrigued by the rich history of Islam and the black experience. At the same time was struck by how little I would hear about that in public discourse about Islam. So going back to what I said, I was a journalist and and I thought, you know, we've had so many conversations about Islam since 9-11 and and yet so so rarely do we hear from African-American Muslims. And so I have these kind of two two sites that I'm going to 
And for a number of reasons, um, one of them being the access issues that I could have as a woman and where I could get access and, and who I could get access to, I decided to focus on Masjid Al-Quran, which I call Mac in the book in South Central. And, you know, at, at the time I was also in courses, kind of my course sociology courses, and I was reading classics like William Julius Wilson's The Truly Disadvantaged and starting to be exposed to urban sociology. And so as I'm doing my field work and I'm reading these classics, I was really struck by how when I would go into Mac, a lot of what I saw and observed as an ethnographer resonated with what I was reading in urban sociology in many ways more than what I was reading in the sociology of religion. And so the, the idea that I could bring to conversation into conversation these two, these two different fields of religion and urban sociology was, was really just was a great opportunity for me. And I I think it's implicit in the book. Um, I, maybe you, you, you know, my writing style is such that I don't always say things super explicitly, but the implicit puzzle that, that really drove me to focus on Mac was why stay in this community when there are so many problems? So in classic sociology of religion, we think of religious organizations as voluntary organizations. So if it's voluntary and you're going to a mosque and there are a lot of conflicts. There's a lot of tension. Um, you know, I'm focused on interactions because that's the training that I got as an ethnographer. And I'm seeing all, literally fights. I mean, sometimes physical fights. Why do people stay? And that just, that became a question, a puzzle that intrigued me for many, many years. And that's why I stayed so long. And that's why the book took quite a while to finish, actually. And by long, you mean like nearly 12 years of fieldwork, right? Like... <laughs> So you really immerse yourself in this community and really, um, I mean, it's, it's amazing because it really speaks to kind of the relationships that you've built and your engagement with the community. Um, for some of our listeners who may have no context, um, not just of this masjid, but actually broadly um, South, um, South Central, can you say a little bit about maybe like what we should know about this space, um, especially as an, uh, an urban ethnographer, like what are some things that define this space or the challenges of this broader urban space? Yeah, that's incredibly important, right? Because this is really a story about Islam rooted in a particular neighborhood. South Central is a section of Los Angeles, a rather large section of Los Angeles, um, which is, depending on how you draw the boundaries, up to 50 square miles and nearly a million people contained in this space. And it's kind of south, it is south of the central business district. And it has a fabled history. I think there's a tremendous amount of stereotyping about South Central. And so I know you know, you told me that the audience is quite global. I'm imagining that even if people are not familiar with Los Angeles, maybe at some point they've heard the term South Central, right? There's, there's a tremendous amount of rap music and movies that refer to it. And I really wanted to go deep into the urban experience, but not do a kind of conventional approach to thinking about a neighborhood like South Central which is, you know, tends to be when you open up an ethnography like this that's urban, you would read a lot of statistics, a lot of descriptions about the neighborhood. And I really worked hard to show you what South Central is like through the lens of the believers at Mac. And so, I mean, to, to what I do talk about is that this is a neighborhood, and particularly this, this neighborhood within the larger South Central area is 
has high rates of poverty for the entire duration of the time that, that MAC has been established there. The rates were above 40%, which is what sociologists would consider you know, a high concentration of poverty. And it also is a place with high rates of violent crime. It has a very complicated relationship with police. And so these are, these are sort of the larger structural issues, right? So a lack of employment opportunities, less, less advantages when it comes to schooling, many different ways in which, uh, you know, there's these kind of structural disadvantages that, that believers and residents face. And so many of the people at MAC are also residents of the neighborhood, but not all of them. And so that's important also to sort of see how the people who don't live in the neighborhood make sense of, of South Central. And so it is this fabled land. And I, and I tell the story, you know, going back to the idea of stereotypes. I mean, I tell the story in the book of how some of the women, the believers would go on Hajj. And when they went to Hajj, people had these stereotypes of South Central that they were coming from around the world and just reminding the believers that this is the image that people have. So I worked really hard, I think, I hope, <laughs> I hope it works. And I worked really hard to, to give you a different perspective on South Central, not what you would classically read. Mm-hmm. And I think you did. I mean, I remember the part of the book where you, the sisters do, do go on Hajj and they arrive and they're talking about, I think, um, the the riots post Rodney King trial and everything. And you kind of really felt that this was a stereotype that followed them across the ocean and across you know borders, right? Which was hard. Um, but I think definitely the stories in each of the chapters and the way that you engage with issues of race and class, um, I think it's definitely something um, that you're successful at. Um, I wonder then if we could just, you know, get into some of the chapters and start talking about them. Um, so one of the things um, you did do is spent a lot of time during, um, especially during Ramadan over the years that you were doing field work and especially uh, participating in, in Iftar. Um, and so chapter one, I believe, starts with this kind of the setting. Um, and a lot of the chapters begin with a beautiful and kind of grounded vignettes that get us into the the space and the landscape that you're you're kind of in and engaging. Um, And in this chapter, uh, what you do is talk about this issue of charity, right? And so you've given us the context where there is a stereotype of poverty and then that's something that you're trying to break. And and I think chapter one right away gets us into this kind of, this tension of charity, especially of a particular community, the MAC community that it itself has kind of various um, economic realities. Um, And so can we talk a little bit about this, this chapter and the tension of charity that you're trying to get across? Absolutely. Chapter one is in many ways the kind of core chapter of the book, right? And it's really getting at what I see as the main contribution is thinking about how people deepen their piety, deepen engagement with faith by engaging community. So charity and and Ramadan and Iftar, these are all kind of moments for an ethnographer to come in and really see how people are working through their everyday religion. So absolutely. What questions do you have for me? Well, I think maybe you could just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by kind of what you described in the first chapter, where there was just tension of giving out food, right? Of like who, um, at moments of iftar, who to give out the food to, and if Muslims or not Muslims should be served first, right? And, and in terms of how the community navigated it, how individuals are making these decisions, and how at the end, maybe food was given out to the non-Muslims of the community who's... Uh, I don't know, I don't know how to frame this, but were quote unquote morally suspect, I guess, in their life choices, right? But um, you have Muslims who did 
help with making the food and everything who do not end up having uh, meals, right? And so there's this tension among some of your interlocutors that you're engaging with about like, is this right or not? Who should be served first? Do we serve somebody who is coming in drunk or dressed inappropriately or all these things? And I say it in quotation marks. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I thought that this conversation was really fascinating, um, particularly in terms of like the central point, which is charity, right? Which is, you know, maybe one of the features that define some Muslim communities, especially during Ramadan. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you summarized the chapter pretty nicely for me. Um, yeah, so, so to give the listeners a little bit of, of background and context. So every night of Ramadan, this community, the Mat community, puts on an iftar dinner, and they open up the gates. There are literal gates um, blocking off the, the the mosque um, from the street and they open up the gates and they invite anybody from the neighborhood who wants to line up, receive a plate. And many nights it goes perfectly fine, right? It's, it's very smooth, it's a very quick process, there's, there's enough food. Some nights there was not enough food though. Um, and particularly in 2008, um, when there was the recession um, and the global recession. And there were many, many nights actually that year in which there just wasn't enough food to feed fasting believers and guests from the street. And so there would be conflicts sometimes between believers over, you know, who do we prioritize? Who do you give? What does feeding the less fortunate during Ramadan mean when you are of a community where there are many believers who are struggling to have more than one meal a day or, or during Ramadan to have a meal in the evening. And so I really look at these, these micro interactions of how believers work through this and different ways in which there are conflicts. And, but again, and, you know, going back to what I say is that in the end, you know, Ramadan takes place even after 2008 and 2009, right? You have Iftar again every year with the same pattern of trying to feed the fasting believers and, and the non-Muslims in the neighborhood as well. And, and sort of, you know, the commitment to doing this as part of how we engage Islam in this community and the leader, uh, you know, the imam there was very important for, for making sure that non-Muslims were fed and, and his belief was that non-Muslims should be fed first and that this is what um, the Prophet Muhammad would have done. And I think, you know, there's also, it's also a moment in which this chapter, you see the neighborhood, like the neighborhood is, is, is a character there as well, because there's a lot of boundary making that's going on, right? And so when people come in from the street who are non-Muslim, who maybe are not dressed in a way that, that um, you know, the believers would dress, there are conversations that are people are having in which they're cementing themselves as a community. They're, they're cementing their identities as Muslims in this space in relation to the others, to the other folks who are coming in into the mosque, right? So there's that kind of boundary making. But interestingly, the tension is not with the people who come in from the street. The tension is with each other over how to distribute, distribute limited resources. And so I talk about, you know, there's a, I mean, another way I, I need to situate for the readers the context, and particularly this part of South Central, is how much change the neighborhood has undergone. So South Central is a historically black urban space. And when Mac established itself, it was 80% African-American in the neighborhood. It is today closer to 90% uh, Latino. And so you have this kind of, this sense that, that the Mac community is this little bit of an island 
um, within the neighborhood and it's increasingly isolated. And so there's this sense that, you know, we have to maintain a commitment to the neighborhood. We're trying to maintain a long history and legacy here, right? And there's this attachment to this kind of black urban space of South Central. And so, you know, believers are, are just trying to work through that um, and, and think about, you know, how we're going to do that. Many of the guests who came in were also black. And so there was this commitment to feeding the homeless on the street um, who had, you know, many in cases, people had known them for, for years, sometimes decades. And so this is, there's also a community, there's a sense in which during Ramadan, that community is a much wider concept. It's not just the Muslims and the believers, but it's really the neighborhood as well. And that wasn't so much true the rest of the year um, when the gates were tended to be closed. But, but during Ramadan, there's this sense that Islam is about engaging in the larger community and all that brings with it. And the conflicts that arise, working through them is how you deepen your faith. It's how you show your commitment to Allah. Chapter two, um, I think also is um, a fascinating chapter because it gives us a little bit of institutional history of the community that you're talking about. Um, and this chapter really starts off in the beginning with the death of Imam um, W.D. Muhammad. So, um, and so some folks may not know who that is. Um, so can you give us a little context of who he is and why his death was so significant for the Mac community? Absolutely. So the Mac community, if you're looking at its, you know, its origins and its, its history came through the nation of Islam. And so it was originally founded by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And some of the, the leaders uh, who I know came through that, that tradition of the nation of Islam. When Elijah Muhammad passed, his son W.D. Muhammad took over then the nation of Islam, and then transitioned it into a different organization and really brought people who'd been in the nation, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, depending on, on how you're calculating the map, into a Sunni tradition of Islam. And so he is seen as really the leader. I mean, Islam is you know a decentralized religion, right? There isn't a pope like in Catholicism, but if you can think of a local leader in the United States who, who had a tremendous amount of influence and it was just pivotal to the history of, of Islam from the black experience, it would be W.D. Muhammad. And so he had been to this community, had been to the, the Mac Mosque. He had, um, he really, I would say mentored the man who was the Imam of Mac. And when he passed away in 2008, it was, a moment, it was an important moment. I mean, it was a tremendous loss for the community. Many believers had met with Dean Muhammad, Imam Muhammad, and felt um, a personal sense of loss. And so this was a, a bit of a turning point for the community. They're thinking we've had this leadership, this lineage through the nation, through the son of the man who founded us, and now what are we gonna do? And the Imam held a community meeting, which I write about, and he said, you know, it feels like we're a rudderless ship. And so the, you know, it's like, where are we going to go next? And so at that moment, he reflected back on their long history, which I use then as a segue into getting into the long history of the Mac community. And, you know, I think conventionally you start an ethnography or you often start an urban book with the history, but, but I specifically had it come in afterwards, after you've, you've, you've seen Ramadan and you've kind of gotten the core of of what's going on in this community, but it is really important for every chapter that comes after it to understand 
both what the community built and what they lost. So let me explain that a little bit for the listeners. So Mac was established in the early 70s during the Nation of Islam. And at that time, you know, they were really focused on building a separate economy um, and a separate way of life for African-Americans in South Central. And this was occurring in many different cities throughout the United States where the Nation of Islam was attracting many disenfranchised Black residents into the, into the faith and really giving them a sense of empowerment that, you know, we have been cut off from, you know, white society. And so here we're going to establish our own businesses, our own schools, you know, our masjids are going to be the center of family life as well. And so this is really, you know, the Mac community worked really hard for, for decades to build, um, and they have many businesses, many brick or mortar businesses, a fish import business, and we're doing quite well. And it was helping to raise the status, the economic status of, of members. Through a series of financial setbacks, which I detail in the book, they lost everything, literally lost all those businesses they were, um, and, and lost their actual physical masjid. So it was declared Um, They couldn't live there anymore because of earthquake damage, and they didn't have the money to rebuild. So they had to wait even to get money and donations from other Muslim communities to tear down that mosque. And slowly over the next 25, 30 years have been, are still rebuilding this this property. Um, And so, you know, when you've gone through so much loss, it's going to shape the way you think about your community, your neighborhood, your, you know, the way you understand Islam. Um, and, and this kind of, the sense of loss, I think is really important, as I said, to understand other parts of the book. But it's also just important to understand that, you know, South Central was also changing at the same time and many different things were happening in the neighborhood and, and lots of problems. And yet the community says we're staying rooted in this neighborhood. And I think there are a lot of religious communities a lot of churches and mosques throughout the United States and, and, you know, where property is what you have, right? You have a declining membership, you're losing people, um, they're leaving the faith, they're moving, but you have this property and it becomes really symbolic and very important to the community to maintain that. And that absolutely was the case at Mac. And in that sense, this chapter almost felt nostalgic to read, right? Because I think some of your interlocutors, as you're describing, were reminiscing with this loss of this important figure. Um, and you also include a chart in, in this chapter that showcases the demographic shift that's taking place around the neighborhood that's also impacting some of these sentiments that your um, interlocutors are expressing to you. Um, and that was fascinating. And I think adds more to kind of what the discussion is going on around race, particularly in African-American identity. Um, And chapter three kind of continues on this and really picks up kind of this economic thread um, and this issue of class that's apparent in, you know, the subsequent chapters and also throughout the entire study. Um, And this is kind of almost a great chapter to talk about the life of the, you know, the hustle of some of the believers in the community, right? In terms of the marketplace that is set up, how products are being, are sold like from cakes to purses and things like this and what the exchange process is and what it says about um, people trying to to move up 
economically, if at all possible, or even just have a little bit of a side hustle to survive, right? So can you talk a little bit about this? And, you know, sometimes, you know, in the chapter, you say that you yourself were also helping sell sometimes, right? The sisters that you had become quite close with throughout this project. So what was that like? Yes. Chapter three, money is funny. Yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> this was the hardest chapter to write. This yeah. was a chapter that was actually written first. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. Yeah, no, this, this was, <laughs> that, that's the beauty of this podcast, right? You get to know <laughs> the behind the scenes um, of the struggle I had with this chapter. So it, it was the first chapter I wrote it also is the one I rewrote um, many, many times and just would put it down, would get really frustrated and then just need to set it down for six months and then come back to it. Um, yeah, so as I said, there was this rich history in the nation of Islam of entrepreneurship and really establishing one's businesses in a, in a Muslim community as a form of economic and social and racial empowerment. And so you have after 1975 and you have the subsequent period of decline at Mac, people are losing their brick and mortar businesses. At the same time, many as, as William Julius Wilson, the truly disadvantaged had talked about many of the middle-class believers that could leave the neighborhood did leave the neighborhood. And so Mac becomes this site where people are trying to sell and they're trying to keep these businesses going, right? But now they no longer have brick and mortar. They're, they're selling out of crates or their cars. And so on Fridays after Jummah, you, the mosque turns into a marketplace. And it's promoted in the kuppas. It's promoted in the, in, in the different uh, announcements to really support Muslim businesses, right? This is part of how you are doing your faith, right? Doing religion in this setting. And it's also, I found, and the reason why it was the first chapter is it was an obvious way that you were a member of this community. So on Fridays, you would sometimes have people who came from other, who worked in nearby areas um, who would come who were not African-American Muslims, but they often didn't participate in the marketplace. They certainly didn't sell. So they, they would come in, they would make prayer and they would leave. And then the members of Mac would stay sometimes for hours, many hours. I mean, there were Fridays when we were there hanging out, eating the food that believers were selling, um, buying a scarf when it got too cold and the wind was blowing through and just spending up till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night there. And so it was really a part of the way that you are in the community. You become a member of the community, which is why I started not selling my own products, but, but helping other believers sometimes man their booths that they would set up. And at the same time, if we think back to chapter one and the limited resources, there's only so much money to go around. There's only so much um, in this closed circuit. So Vivian Zelazar would, would talk about this kind of economy as a circuit and, and it's a closed circuit. There's not a lot of new money coming in. And so there would be times that there would be some competition. And at the same time, I talk about how the mosque is hustling, right? And that's the term that that believers themselves use. And so it has a certain, it could have a certain kind of negative or pejorative connotation, but hustling is the term that believers themselves use. So, you know, the mosque is also hustling to try to make money to survive. I mean, this is, you know, they've got to pay their bills. And so they're asking for money. And these dual tensions of feeling that you're always being asked to buy something and you're always being asked by the, the, by the masjid to, to donate money would it just sometimes would amp up the tension level. And 
there were, you know, a particular kind of conflict and there was, there were a series of financial uh, disagreements over finances and distrust that, that would um, develop, particularly sometimes towards the leadership and what are they doing with the money that, that, we're, that you're raising and why is it taking so long to build this school and why is it taking so long to build this new masjid? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it was, but at the same time, it's not anything goes, right? There were specific rules that show how Islam, the boundaries of, of the faith, in this context, what you can sell, what you can't sell, what people were willing to sell in and outside the mosque as well. So it's, it's also a form of engaging the faith and, and understanding what kind of Muslim you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. We could shift into chapter four, and I have to say I love this chapter. Um, I, this is a fantastic chapter, um, and I, I should also tell the listeners that the chapter titles are fantastic, and this chapter title is also my favorite. Uh, why not just use a cucumber? Um, and so I think, you know, I'm interested to hear about you know, this chapter a lot in terms of the process of writing it, but also, you know, the role of gender that you're highlighting um, and particularly, you know, the intersectional aspect of gender for the believers at Mac here, for Muslim women, for African-American Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of, you know, this, this complex and almost like, you know, negotiation of the different ways in which to think about what uh, being a woman means, being a mother means. Some of it is being modeled on Clara Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad's wife, um, who is a central figure that is being um, modeled as like an ideal uh, Muslim woman for members of this community, for some members of this community. So you kind of start off in the discussion of the story of Clara Muhammad, but then you shift in over time in this chapter to start thinking about how um, the individuals that you're engaging with are trying to understand their role as Black Muslim women. So can you say a little bit more about this? Absolutely. It's also my favorite chapter. Yeah, I just I just love the title and I haven't been able to stop laughing. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much about this chapter. And actually, I, I want to go back to chapter three and explain a little bit why it was so hard. So I'm in that chapter in chapter three yeah. in a way that I'm not comfortable with. I'm mm-hmm. in it way more than I want it to be. And mm-hmm. we can definitely talk about positionality. And and because I'm perceived in that space and, and very concretely, you know, absolutely also had more resources, I was put into these, you know, I was in this circuit and And there were moments that were just very uncomfortable as an ethnographer there. And I try to be very open and honest about them versus chapter four, which was 
it captures just the best part of my field work. The moments when I thought I may never want to graduate right. because I just want to keep studying this community. Right. Um, yeah. And just the, the, the ability to learn from the women. So I, I follow um, Dr. Suwad Abdul-Kabir's, you know, practice of calling um, folks in your, in your study teachers, right? So I don't say informants or subjects or participants, I see teachers and the, and the women at the mosque really were my teachers. I mean, I learned so much about life. And, it, you know, I'm, I think a lot of it comes through towards the latter part of the chapter, how that the richness of the relationships that the women have with each other. But if we're kind of going back, so, you know, this is a chapter that actually I wrote brand new for the book. Um, many of the other chapters, I had pieces of it in my dissertation and I would revise it. This was completely new. I wrote it in 2019, just before I submitted the final manuscript. And it just kind of flowed because it just, it felt like I was capturing what was a core story of this community. And that's, there's often, you know, we, we can talk quite a bit about gender in Islam, right? And, and the intent and the, the stereotypes that happen with, with gender and, and Muslim women. Um, but there is an explicit attempt to have a traditional, to have traditional gender roles in the, in the MAC community. So very often in, in, when teaching, leaders would talk about, Islamic teachers would talk about, you know, a man's job is to provide and the woman's job is to care for the children. And there's an element of that I talk about and I situated in historical context of why that message would be appealing to Black women and particularly Black women in a neighborhood like South Central. At the same time, the structural reality is such that men often were not able to be the providers. And so they weren't able to live up to this idealized notion of a traditional gender uh, di division in, in the household. And so very often women were the breadwinners. And and how does that work? I mean, how, you know, there's there's this desire for this traditionalism and here's, and here's how the structural reality plays out. And what women end up doing is forming stronger gendered support networks. So joining together. And I remember one of, you know, several years into being a mom at the, you know, doing my field work, I had one of the brothers ask me, so what are you finding about us? And I said, well, one of the things I find is that Men control everything at the masjid. You are the only ones who teach. You're the only ones who lead, you know, control the finances and make decisions. But women have much stronger support networks outside of the mosque and receive much more help from each other outside of the mosque. And I remember he paused and he said, wow, I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And so I think it's, it's also going back to speaking about, you know, what you think Islam is, um, if, if you're not familiar, and then what, you know, what's happening on the ground, right? And so you may see that the masjid has sex segregation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't, you know, a lot happening behind the scenes with what women are doing and how they're, they're you know, making decisions and helping each other. And so that, that's a really important part. And it was just, as I said, it was, you know, learning and, and seeing how women make do with finite resources with limited opportunities, but really cultivating rich relationships with one another, relationships that in, you know, in some cases are stronger than marriage. And I don't know that sociology, I'll just speak for my discipline. 
I don't know that sociology always does the best job of capturing this. We tend to want to put people into categories that we can count and we can compare. And I get it. I get the interest in that. But there's something about the beauty of a relationship between two people or between many different people that I just wanted to capture. And I wanted to show how the women are engaging their faith without it being explicitly about the Quran or what they do at the mosque that may not look like religion, but is obviously part of how they build religious community. I mean, they're raising their children together and, you know, seeing, and, and so for the listeners, you know, the women would come, a group of women, we would go to the mosque and we would set up in the prayer hall and we would, we would watch movies, <laughs> um, chick flicks, if you will, and, and just eat together, also go shopping through the neighborhood together and just do these kinds of everyday activities and that really bonded the women together. And seeing that and seeing the importance on sisterhood was, is probably the element that will last the longest for me when I think about this project in the years to come. And I love, I mean, I still have the image in my head of the end of the chapter of you and Sister Aisha and Sister Ava sitting and watching Steel Magnolias and you're kind of drawing parallels of characters to these figures. And um, it is not something that you would anticipate partly because they're doing it in the mosque, right? You're eating in the mosque and there's this kind of tension that, oh, maybe the imam would not, doesn't like that this is happening, but they're gonna, you know, you're gonna do it anyway and you do do it anyway, right? Um, and I thought that was really fascinating kind of way to end off the chapter, but really highlights some of the things that you're seeing here as well. Absolutely, you know, be strong and do it with humor. Right, which is, is why, why I title it the way I do as a story from the book of, of something one of the women said. I mean, you've got to, you know, life is going to be hard. There are going to be times when there are tears and there are struggles, but there were many, many more laughs. And so I want that to come clear too, right? Islam is not always, it's not always a serious, it doesn't always have to be serious. There's a, there was a lot of, um, you know, engaging faith it was also a fun practice, it was a lot of um, you know, there's just a lot of beauty in those kinds of everyday rituals. And yeah, in this way, the book really captures lived reality of Islam, but the ways in which you kind of, you just humanize piety in the sense that it's just kind of, a, you know, it's not the only thing. There's these, all these other aspects that collectively create these moments, as you're saying, of rituals and pious acts. Um, um, we could shift to chapter five a bit and talk a little bit about, I think the issue of class comes up here again. Um, and and also the issue, I would say, of the changing demographic uh, of South Central, and maybe this speaks broadly to the changing demographic of American Islam and what this has meant for African-American Muslims. Um, and you start the scene off with, um, you know, these bags that are dropped off for donation. I mean, I think it nicely can't compliments or kind of, you know, really brings us back to chapter one, which is this issue of charity and giving. But at this end of this chapter, the charity is being given to the believers of Mac Mosque. And essentially there's donations of clothing or um, other items that are left at the mosque. And you, you know, the community comes together to figure out how to distribute it. So can you tell us a little bit about what's happening here in this chapter and how you're using this kind of the receiving of donation to believers at Mac community to really interrogate this other issue about the ways in which African-American Muslims are perceived broadly by other um, Muslims, such as Arabs or South Asian Muslims in America? Yes, absolutely. So I wrote this book to be read from cover to cover. 
which was a risk. It's not the traditional way of doing things maybe in an academic monograph. But chapter five really is the sort of other side of chapter one. So in chapter one, we see what happens when believers at Mac are giving out charity. And chapter five is what happens when they are the recipients, recipients of charity. And in particular, you know, I opened the chapter that you said is these, these bags, these garbage bags of used clothing, used home items that are, to use the words of believers, dumped um, on the grounds of Mac. The assumption being that it's probably one of the immigrant Muslim communities, um, South Asian Muslim communities that would often come and bring donations to Mac during Ramadan. So, you know, Masjid al-Quran is the place in which many Muslim communities in Southern California feel that they, they should do their zakat within the Muslim community. And so they did receive a lot of donations during Ramadan. But this particular moment when these garbage bags were dropped off is, it was a, it was a pivotal moment. It opened up a conversation, a difficult conversation among believers as to how they feel they're perceived within the larger American ummah. So within the larger Muslim community in America, by non-African-American Muslims, how are they perceived? And because not everybody is from the neighborhood, um, you know, you cannot assume when you come to this space that you know someone's class standing. But in that moment when, when feeling that garbage or seeing that garbage bags are being dropped off, there's this feeling that, uh, this collective feeling of like, that's what they think of us, right? They think we're all poor. They think we're all in need that we, we're so desperately in need, we take used dirty clothing. And I think it's a really, this is a conversation that I, I would hope this chapter could open up an, a conversation among some of the Muslim communities in America and, and a really sort of a hard conversation that needs to be had. That is tough. That is a tough moment to experience when you as a believer have been working so hard throughout the year and now you're in Ramadan, your holy month, you're really working hard to deepen your faith and, and to really, in relationship to this neighborhood, to construct a sense of self that is distinct from the stereotypes of what you see happening or what you think people think are happening in South Central. And then to be, the feeling is that you're just lumped in with all of that neighborhood and that your Muslim brothers and sisters don't see you as a fellow believer. They don't stay to make prayer or to eat iftar, to break the fast. But, but just to leave the donations. And so that, I think it was a, it brings out some very strong emotions and there are some strong words that, that are spoken and, and some I include um, and, and contextualize and some I didn't include. And at the same time, it is, you know, believers do recognize that they need the donations. They need the support of the larger Muslim community in Los Angeles. So I talked about, you know, how they had to tear down the mosque and, and that was discussed in chapter two. And it, they, they didn't even have the money at that time to fill in the dirt to, to flatten out this space. And they had to wait until Muslims from another community came and donated money so that they could get, they could just even get the land raised clearly um, and not fill up with rain puddles um, throughout the year. So, so there's a recognition where we need the help, but we want it to be done in a way that's respectful, right? And so the, this chapter is really about, you know, how believers are working through this tension as well. And what it says about really what I mean, and the argument that I make is that what it fundamentally says about, about white supremacy um, and, and race in America and how 
you know, Afri how African-American and immigrant Muslims are, are having to navigate this particular domain um, or this, this kind of like structural landscape um, in light of, you know, the, the racialization of Muslims, um, in light of, you know, the surveillance of Muslims, right? So there's, there's a lot of tensions there. Um, and I just, you know, to be very clear with listeners, I'm really only talking about the perspective by and large of the community that I studied. So the Mac believers. So I would love to see scholars read this, engage with the work and build from it. And, and we, you know, begin to think about how we understand how to complicate these relationships, um, you know, between different groups within the Ummah. And I think this chapter also highlights and nuances like the layers of racism within Muslim communities, right? From anti-Black racism to um, even uh, your, the believers of the community recognizing that Arab Muslims and South Asian Muslims are suffering a post 9-11 reality, right? So it's the ways in which white supremacy kind of places race and enacts race in different communities and what that means when you're supposed to be a universal ummah, right? That Muslimness is supposed to be overarching and not race, right? Um, right. And I think this fascinatingly, fascinatingly from the perspective of the believers at Mac community highlights those dynamics and how they're negotiating with it. Um, yeah, and if I can, I can just add one thing here. I think it's it's really important to for listeners to understand that this is primarily an aging community. This is a much older community, and so I'm also very clear that this is just this community that I studied, right? And I think you would find some different perceptions slash relationships among a younger population of, of African-American Muslims um, with the larger Ummah. And so it, it's important to understand that this is a community who's been through, again, why this comes at the end, has been through these various configurations of Islam, how they understand what one's racial identity, one's understanding of self in the society is. And so I do think that the, the, the age part is, is pretty important here as well. And I would love, again, I would love to see work done on, on other populations um, to sort of other other sites with maybe younger members to see is there a different configure is there a different way of imagining what what the Uma can be um, with people who've had a different life trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, to the point that you raised, some of the uh, points that you're raising in this chapter made me think of my own project of, um, you know, Sufi mosque in Philadelphia. And I think in, it had a similar reality in terms of African-American populations and new waves of immigrants that are coming. And so it is quite heterogeneous, but I think, you know, during moments of meals or during iftars, you could see um, ways in which people were sitting separately. Um, and part of that was kind of based around race, right? And comments were said about what the arrival of new um, immigrant communities had meant for um, some African-American Muslims in that either they left or they had to negotiate their presence in some way because they were dedicated to the Sufi community. Um, so I definitely felt that there were some parallels, um, but also some differences as well. Yeah, um, and, and money, right? Money right. matters in this case as well, right? Who has the money to be building mosques exactly. in America? Exactly. And um, which you know gets a little bit in, in into the conclusion as well. It's like, why are we seeing a decline in black-led mosques in the, in the United States? And that statistic that you had, which I'm now looking for and cannot find, that from 2011 to 2018, I don't know if that's the right year, so there was an influx of like, let's say 30, I don't know. If, but anyway, there was an influx in terms of 
mosques being built, but um, majority of them were like, most of them were not African-American mosques at all. They were other, um, other kind of racialized communities. Um, and you actually see kind of downtake of um, black mosques. And so I think, I think the generational aspect, the class aspect are also important things to, to consider. And perhaps this is a good way to shift into um, the conclusion. Um, the conclusion was hard to read, and I imagine for you was immensely difficult to write as well. Um, and especially with the passing of um, one of the teachers that you spent a lot of time with, Sister Eva. And so can you perhaps talk a little bit about what you wanted to do in the conclusion and why you wanted to write it the way that you did? Because I did feel that there was a different different tone and rightly so in this, in this final chapter. Yes, okay. And must it's, be also hard for you to talk about. So you don't want to talk I'm realizing about it. it is, it is. Yeah. As I, I haven't been giving book talks because of COVID. And so this is one of the first moments where I'm, I'm speaking publicly about the conclusion. I, yes, it's, it's a change. You know, the project changed for me when Sister Ava passed suddenly. Sudden death is, it, it upends uh, entire lives, families. And in many ways, this community, at least at that point from the way that I was engaged with the community. Um, and there were a number of things I wanted to do with this. Um, one is, is show the way that one member really affect, can affect this larger community. I mean, when she, you know, I talk about how her funeral, I, I talk about, well, let me back up. So she passes away. Um, she has been Muslim for many decades and she's in primarily a non-Muslim family. So most of her adult children are not Muslim. Only one of seven was. Um, most of her siblings were not Muslim. In some cases, she had um, very religious Christian uh, siblings. And so it becomes this moment of navigating, being, you know, what, what's going to happen to Sister Ava? And is she going to receive a Muslim burial? Will her family, her, her Christian family honor that? And this is really gets to what I think is a, is a moment, or I'm sorry, an experience for African-American Muslims that isn't often talked about, at least in the literature or in public discourses either. So what is it like to navigate these competing identities or these different religious identities, right? So many of the believers at Mac have been born and raised Christian. They've transitioned to Islam. Many are living with non-Muslim family members. And that's a really unique experience relative to mostly what you see with, with the immigrant Muslim population in the United States. So this is a particular experience for African-American Muslims. And it became really evident when Sister Ava passed and navigating the burial and then at the funeral, you know, what name to use for her. She had her Muslim name, she had her, her given name. Her family wants the given name used, her you know, Muslim brothers and sisters want Sister Ava. And so just, you know, and what kind of picture to put on the program? Is she gonna be covered? Is she not? Her family wants to remember an Ava that, that existed, lived before Islam and captured that part of her spirit. Whereas the believers are saying, hey, for the last 30 years, she's come down here nearly every day. This is her life. And so there's this, this a little bit of a, a tug um, a, a, you know, over who was Sister Ava and who gets to define that at that moment. And just at the funeral, hearing the imam have to explain to the family multiple times why they call her Sister Ava, even if that's not the name um, her family members 
knew her as. And at the same time, I'm at this funeral and there's 500 people. And I have never been to a funeral uh, with like that. And, you know, just realizing that this is a person who affected so many people. And there were other, other funeral, other janazas I went to that had hundreds of people. So it, it wasn't just Ava, although hers was, was particularly um, you know, large in attendance. And again, going back to what I said earlier, like how do we measure the work, you know, measure a person's life, the, the impact that they make? And I, for me, that was a pivotal moment. It's like, hey, this woman affected so many, so many of us couldn't function um, that week for days, for, for many weeks and months, and in some cases years, because of how much she, she changed our lives. And so I, I needed it to end in a way that shows that depth of, of human connection and commitment and at the same time recognizes that there are these struggles and that, you know, she's, you know, her life, she's been through um, a series of, of setbacks, but also striving, right? It's not just surviving, it's striving. It's striving to, you know, find her, her way through Islam, with Islam. Um, and, and at the same time, then kind of transitioning. So these are all that there's a lot of different problems members of this community face, right? And so, in their case, they're going to keep going and keep striving, but maybe there's lessons here for how we think about African-American-led mosques more generally in the United States, right? So between 2001 and 2011, you have the number of African-American-led mosques declining in the United States. At the same time, the number of mosques overall increases by 74%, right? So, so what's going on here, right? And, what, and, and so I think that through the story of Mac, we see some of the explanation for how that kind of survey data, you know, why that survey data is the way that it is. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, despite, as I say in chapter five, you know, despite the, the goals of having um, a race, um, a race blind Islam or, or uh, an Islam in which all races are equal, there are, there are differences, economic, socioeconomic differences, and there are concrete reasons why we can point to as to why you see the number of mosques that are led by immigrant Muslims rising and the number of African-American-led mosques declining. And so sort of, you know, ending on that note, which may not have been the happiest note in some ways, but at the same time just felt like, again, this is an aging community. And many of the members who I knew have passed and I haven't been able to have conversations with them about the book because they're no longer with us. And this is also a really important feature of, of the Mac community. It's also intense to think about the fact that you're doing an ethnographic project and in the process of it, it becomes a historical project, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think I, I felt it in, in the conclusion in terms of something that's immediate in front of you versus it's becoming a like a memory, even though all ethnographic projects in many ways are memories, but um, a memory that you can't perhaps go back to or um, a teacher that you can't go back and sit with, right? And so I think that intensifies the memory. And so I think this conclusion was um, quite raw and beautifully raw for that reason. So I thank you for writing what was, I imagine, very, very, very difficult to write. Um, yes, and I, I hope I never write something so personal again. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. on that note, actually, I think um, I would, I want to talk to you really about methods here. And um, you have the method section at the appendix. And I, we were chatting a little bit when we were trying to, part of the reason I wanted to talk about it at the end is not only because the methods was at the end, it's partly because I think the conclusion, you know, leads to this, this conversation of, um, how is doing ethnography for you? Because um, uh, you were really involved um, and so much so that you lost somebody that was very close to you in the process and you had to write about it. And there were several instances throughout the book that you had to write about yourself, as you were saying, in, in ways that perhaps was not very comfortable um, when you were looking for an apartment and you were trying to move closer to Mac and what, like why that was difficult or um, when people were approaching you, perhaps men were approaching you to help with kind of entrepreneurial ideas or grant stuff. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was going on and some implicated because of your gender and some implicated because of your race. So I wonder if you could just talk about generally now that you're talking about the book for the first time after it's out um, about the whole methodological process and what was that like for you? Yes, yes. So this, this is a deeply personal project in, in many ways. I ended up spending many more years than I intended or expected um, participating in the Mac community and working on this project. You know, I, yeah, it was, it was, it was my life. I mean, to put it, to, to put it really simply, it was my life for many, many years. And I joke with people because I was going to UCLA, but actually I mean, I don't think anybody at UCLA even knew when I was pregnant because I was never at UCLA. Um, I remember, you know, going to campus once I was eight months pregnant and obviously very, very pregnant. And um, people were like, what? You're pregnant? <laughs> um, people in my cohort were surprised. And it's just because I spent all my time at the mosque. I chose to spend all my time on the mosque. This was a community in which I, I just felt um, I wanted to be part of this community. I really did, you know, and um, I, I, I talk about in the methods appendix, how I thought about conversion at one point to be a member of this, this community and explain why I didn't take the Shahada. I think ethnography, really, you've got to do the time. You've got to build rapport. And there's no way to do that without FaceTime, without being there. And in my particular case, as a white woman studying an African-American community, as a Christian woman studying a Muslim community, um, you know, I had, to, I had to just be patient. And, and, and that was what I should have done. I should have just gone and, and let people ask questions. What are your intentions? What are you doing? Why are you here? And that took time. And I really focused, I spent many, many months just, you know, answering people's questions. Um, and every day I was there, somebody would ask a question. Now, Ramadan was really important for this because out of 31 nights of my first Ramadan, I went to Mac 30, 30 of those nights. So, so just every single day sitting, having a meal with people, talking, answering their questions, honestly, you know, talking about my faith um, upbringing, talking about my education, talking about my interests, talking about my teaching experiences. All of these are moments where I'm getting to know them, but they're getting to know me as well, right? And, and I think you just have to be honest about who you are in the field. And as much as I'm uncomfortable with it, I decided I also have to be really open and honest with readers. 
you need to know where I was at different moments. You need to know what I was doing to understand how the data unfolds the way it does. I mean, I believe you can talk about positionality in an appendix, and I do, but it's also in the writing. I mean, if you're really going to be reflexive, it's throughout the book that you're thinking about your relationship to the, the folks that you're studying, your relationship to the data, right? So that's what I you know, I hope by the end, reading the Methods Appendix, you're seeing how I did that throughout the book, or you're remembering moments that I'm doing this in the book, and it's not just there at the end. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of get at what, what you're thinking about? I mean, I could go on for quite a while. I mean, this is a book that, as I said, changed me. And, and I try not to use my experiences as the data, right, but as heuristic devices to think about and ask questions of my data. And so I tried throughout the process to do that. Um, I didn't write, you know, it's, it's, I think it's quite honest, but it's not excessively long, I hope, as a, as a methods appendix goes and, and, and not too self-indulgent in that way. Yeah. I mean, you start the methods appendix by quoting Judith Butler and, and uh, saying, let's face it, if we're not undone by each other, um, and if we're not, we're missing something. And clearly, I think in reading the method section, it felt like I was reading that you were undone by the experiences that you've had. And I think that's quite powerful. Um, and I was thinking about this. I was like, I, you know, why didn't you put the method section at the beginning? And why is it at the end, right? There's always this kind of perennial kind of decision to um, conflict on the decision to make. But I, I am happy that you did it at the end after having read the book. Because I think it allowed me, as you said, to go back and reflect on the moments where you were in the book, which I think initially going into it, I wasn't really paying attention to because the methods wasn't like at the forefront. But now at the end and reading the methods section in my head, I'm like, oh, this would be a great, you know, great book in a methods class and ethnography for, you know, grad students, for scholars to read. Right. Um, Partly because of the sensitivity that you bring to it. Um, do you have any advice for maybe grad students who are embarking on ethnographic projects? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've done an intense one. Yeah, you know, one of the best things about finishing a book is that is that epistemic authority that I feel yeah. in the classroom <laughs> with the students, right? And yeah. not just, oh, the book's gonna come out in a couple of years. It's actually out, you know, yeah. I can point to concrete pages. Yeah, so I did. I wrote that methods appendix. Um, thank you for saying that about the end too. I know there's also disciplinary practices as to where to put it. Um, and, and I did put it at the end because I needed to be able to talk about Ava and the loss of Ava. Yeah. And of course, I didn't want to do that at the beginning of the book because you, like I said, I sort of wrote it, you know, like a little bit like a, a novel, right? You want to read it from the beginning to the end. So, so you get to that. I think for students, as I say, you know, it's about being reflexive and, and thinking about these multiple intersecting identities that we have as researchers um, and treating, I think my biggest piece of respect, and, I mean, sorry, my biggest piece of advice in addition to just take the time, which you can do in grad school, and I miss that part of grad okay. school, um, is, is to just be respectful. Hmm. You know, like I went in with humility. I still have humility when I go um, into spaces, even if I think of myself as an expert on the topic, because I don't know that world really. I don't know it through the lens of the real experts or the people who live every day Mm -hmm. in that space. And so I know that in academia, we have this, we've been trained and professionalized to be, some might say arrogant, (laughs) cocky, confident, right? But when you're going into a field site, 
you need to set that stuff aside and just and, and be a student and and treat people with respect and they are your teachers and you're there to learn from them. Um, and so that's, I think my biggest piece of advice of all is, is just knowing and that, you know, regardless of what site you're going into, you have things to learn. We all have things to learn. And, and I think that that helped a lot in my case and just the, the willingness to, to be open and honest with people. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. It's fantastic. Um, as we conclude, I mean, is there a, there's so much in this book that we haven't even barely touched upon, but I, is there anything else that you want to uh, get across to the readers, that, uh, listeners that perhaps we've missed in our conversation thus far? Obviously they'll have to pick up the book and read it to get all of the, all of it, but. Yeah, right. So a book like this, it, I hate saying, well, you really need to read it to get you, it, but you, you kind of do. Yeah, <laughs> you do need to read it to get it. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think about where I'm going next with my research. And, and so the conclusion, again, it's raw because it's also a transition for me and where I head next um, as an ethnographer and as a scholar. And I, I do want to just say that this the story of Sister Sherry, who I mentioned in the conclusion, she passed away. She was a longtime member. She had many different health issues, physical and mental. She passed away with no family who was willing to bury her, no next of kin to claim her body. And and Mac went to court and spent thousands of dollars, I mean, uh, nearly $8,000 to claim her body and to provide her with a Muslim burial. And it opened up a whole new project for me, which I'm I'm working on now in the next book of what happens when someone dies with no family to claim them. And I just wanna say, you know, in, in honor ending this and in honor of the Mac community in the hundreds and hundreds of cases that I've studied in the years since, I've never found a religious community who went through that much effort mm-hmm. to claim a member. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I really do think it speaks to the, the beauty and the strength of ties, how amidst struggle, you can come together as a community and, and find a connection that will deepen your faith in Islam and your connection to one another. And it really made members feel that they were brothers and sisters, that they were a family by doing things like this, by organizing burials, Muslim burials for their members. So I think, you know, that's, I know it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about death, but I think there's ways of looking at death as moments to reflect on life and what life means, and in this case, what community means in this setting. And so for me, that that's a really important point about the community and their strength. Fantastic. And you've alluded to your next project. Do you want to say anything more about what you're working on or other projects you're also working on that we could expect from you in the near future? Oh, well, um, I just that I'm, I'm trying to finish that book. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's on, on people who go unclaimed and um, it's co-authored and, and we're in deep in the writing phase. So stay tuned for that. You know, my goal is to be uh, an author with as many subtitles listing the city of angels as possible. Right. So. <laughs> I feel like I could just study LA for for the rest of my life. There's so much that's interesting and happening there. So I don't know what will be going on beyond the unclaimed. I think I'm probably going to need a little bit of a break because that book has been really different and going to methods. Like it's not one site. Uh We've done field work in dozens of places. I've knocked on people's doors. I've cold called people. I mean, it's really different kind of work. 
Um, and so I'm probably going to at some point want to go back to studying a single site where I know I can go every time and, and I can get data and I can build those connections because it was, it was the part that undid me mm. was the part that kept me there for right. 10 years. So that's, that's my goal with all my projects is to be undone mm. um, as a result of this one um, and believing in South Central. So yeah, that's, that will be next down the road. <laughs> That's fantastic. I would love to just take a methods like, or just sit with you and talk to you about methods. Forever, <laughs> like it just, you should write a methods book one day about how all of the things that you've done and the different sites, because it, it, it is intense. And so it's really a testament to you, you and your scholarship. Um, thank you so much for joining us and talking to New Books in Islamic Studies about your fantastic new book, Believing in South Central, Everyday Islam in the City of Angels. And our listeners should definitely go pick it up and read it. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's listening. And that was my conversation with Dr. Pamela J. Prickett about her new book, Believing in South Central Everyday Islam in the City of Angels. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.